0: I'm Michael Hainsworth. Britain's long, drawn-out attempt to exit from the European Union is having a knock-on effect around the world. Second only to the trade war between the United States and China, Brexit is seen as the key catalyst for the slowdown in global economic growth, as uncertainty leads to a pulling in of investment. Canada has more than $100 invested in the UK directly, largely based on using Britain as a jumping-off point to our second biggest export customer, the European Union. For insight into the impact Brexit is having and what it means for Canadian investment in the UK, we turned to David Blanchflower, a professor of economics at Dartmouth University and a former member of the Monetary Policy Committee at the Bank of England. We started our conversation with an update on the current state of Brexit
1: negotiations. Um, Nothing much has changed in the last 15 minutes, (laughs) uh, as far as I can tell. Um, Although the question, if you would have asked me that yesterday or the day before, I'd have had to give you a dis- different answer. It's been moving that quickly. Yeah, it's moving that quickly. Uh, another lawsuit was filed today, uh, a different lawsuit yesterday, the one in Scotland the day before, uh, and the speech yesterday by the Speaker of the House of Commons means that everything's moved, even in the last 24 hours. Um, Parliament has come back and passed an act to say that basically there can't be a general election and basically that the date of the uh, the Halloween Brexit day is going to be pushed back. So everything is in flux, and apparently Boris Johnson is going to go and talk to uh, the Irish um, this week, and there has been some weakening of the position of the DUP, in the, the Democratic Unionist Party in Ireland. And the reason perhaps for that is that they had a pretty strong position a little while ago under Theresa May, because they gave her a majority in the House of Commons, but now no longer are they in that position, no longer can they be the catalyst. So the politics are moving very fast, they're moving by the hour. We, we have a hearing next week of the British Supreme Court to talk about this, so it's pretty hard to exactly answer where we are. The economics is clearer, uh, and the crucial aspect of the, of the Irish peace accords and whether there will be a hard Irish border, which makes absolutely no sense um is is a big deal but and and so and also what we've seen is a battle between the prime minister and the parliament and the courts um and so so this is i'm about to start a new class with my students on macroeconomics and i've just wrote this is a really great time to be studying economics I can imagine, and since the
0: referendum, exports to the UK have been a weak spot in our trade with Europe, and this can't be unique to Canada.
1: Well, it isn't unique to Canada. Um, We've seen it from other countries, and I think perhaps indicative of that is also not just exports, but investment. And I think the the reality is that people have no idea. I mean, if I have to answer your question by saying I don't know what's going to happen in the next 20 minutes, that's pretty hard. And so um, there's, there's the, the, the uncertainty is a really big deal. The movement in the exchange rate has been uh, uh, obviously an issue. And if you're going to buy goods, well what are you, you're going to have to take some view on the, on, the, on the exchange rate. So this, so this is a really about uncertainty. It's about are firms going to continue to produce in the UK? Are they going to move elsewhere? And then, and then also what kind of trade deals will there be? going forward if and when there is a Brexit. I mean, for example, you're gonna have, if, if Britain leaves with a no deal Brexit, they're gonna to have to negotiate not just with Canada, but with each of the other 27 countries or with with the entire Europe or, or something. And especially uh, unclear that a US-UK trade deal can actually be negotiated. I, an interesting thing is that Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House has said, if the there will be no US-UK trade deal, if the British government messes with the Irish peace accords and tries to to do that, so that's a really big deal. If you can't do one with the U.S., despite the fact that Trump says he wants to, the House the House of Representatives, led by Nancy Pelosi, will determine him, will determine whether that happens. And they haven't voted for the new NAFTA deal, as you as you guys well know. So what's so bad about
0: an Irish backstop that Boris Johnson would rather be dead in a ditch?
1: Well, it's really interesting. I mean, I I go to Ireland quite a lot. I'm I'm actually headed there about four days after October the 30th, early in November, and I'm going to fly into Dublin and take a car's going to meet me and drive me to Belfast. Well, um, at the moment, it's like driving between, it's not like driving between the US and Canada. I'm pretty close to Canada here where where there's a border. It's more like driving between Vermont and New Hampshire. There's actually a river there, but other than that. Um, So the first thing is that we've had 20 years of peace uh, brought about by the peace accords. And neither the, the North nor the South want a border to be there. They want it to be seamless. And the Northern Irish voted to remain. So the prospect of having a border wall, because there would have to be some kind of wall there, because there's nobody suggested there's the technology to do it without something physical there, that neither South nor North wants. And I've heard various interviews people said, which is that the first person who sticks their head over the parapet might regret it. I mean, so that, so neither the South or the, nor the North wanted, and we've had peace for so long. So the idea of having a hard border there is just anathema to most people, but... Boris Johnson seems to think that that was okay, as, as do some of the other Brexiteers, including Reese Mogg and others. And sensible people, I think, disagree.
0: You mentioned investments into the United Kingdom. Canada has 109 billion in direct investments in the UK, but that's r- largely predicated on UK firms being able to easily access the EU. Exactly. In a hard Brexit
1: scenario, how do you see those direct investments playing out? Well, it's pretty, it's pretty hard to believe that it would make sense for can, Canadian firms to continue that position. I mean, in a sense, Britain sits, it's this little island sitting off this giant continent, this huge market, and it gives, e- it gives entryway seamlessly into Europe. Um, so the answer is we don't really know. I mean, I advise all, all sorts of companies and I, and I say to them always, you know, just wait, let's wait until we find out what's going on. Um, and, and that I think is the reality where we are right now, that we just don't know what's going to happen. Um, and so, so going forward, keep the relationships that you have. But if necessary, presumably, the firms will move to Frankfurt. Um, Canadian firms will decide it's better to, 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 to deal with Germany or France or Austria or somewhere else rather than the UK, but they just don't know. I mean, we don't know what the deal's gonna be, and that that's bad.
0: It, it strikes me that one of the biggest issues for business and trade generally is uncertainty. Yeah. It's okay if we know one thing one way or another, but when you don't know what's going to happen on a day-to-day basis, how could
1: you possibly put any more money into the island? Well, I, th- I think that's the issue. And some people I think have argued, well, you know, if you knew for certain on October the thirty-first that the UK economy was going to head over a cliff, which is what No Deal Brexit would be, that would help. But I think that makes no sense. I think what we've got to see is try to make the try to make the change as as well. We we just don't want that utter disruption. And what we've seen in the last few days. Uh, I don't your audience has maybe not heard the word yellowhammer, but yellowhammer is actually a set of documents that the Parliament forced um Johnson's government to produce and it was a study done in August to, to say what would a no deal brexit look like and it's i mean the argument is this a, is this a base case or a worst case and we realize it's the base case and it's disastrous it talks about riots on the streets it talks about um the fresh fruit not being able to press across the border, it talks about huge lines at um, border crossing, it talks about the implication of having a hard Irish border. It, has, it talks about what would happen in Gibraltar. Um, and so this is, uh, this is sort of, I mean, I, it, it, when you read it, it's kind of ca- cataclysmic and the chances are that that's about as good as it gets. The prospects are, I mean, for Canadian firms looking at this, they will have read Yellowhammer and they will have held their heads up and said, well, the best thing we can do is, you know, put our hands over our heads and look away for a while. But if it works out anything like this, then we've got to look elsewhere.
0: The UK has the EU's blessing to roll over existing EU trade agreements with a number of countries. Does that mitigate the damage
1: at all? Well, it it may well mitigate it, but is that going to happen? Don't know. Um, Do we... Is there any sense in which the Brexiteers, the strong Brexiteers within the Tory party would actually agree to any of that. So in what form it might come, when it might come, how long the period of transition might come, whether there will be different arrangements between one side of the Irish Sea to the other. I don't know how to answer it, uh, and no, neither does anybody else. So that's obviously pretty tough times to, to know what's going on, and we should get to. The problem right now is that the UK economy is slowing pretty fast, and is probably in recession already, along with the German economy.
0: Using the model though uh, of of CETA, the C.D. House Daniel uh, Schwannen suggests Canada could continue trading freely but separately with the U.K. and the rest of the EU based on CETA. Does that jibe with your view?
1: Well, that's, um, and, and that may that may well be so. Um, not 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 absolutely. I mean, I, I, it's not obvious to me that, that 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 is true or is not true. Um, I mean, it really probably depends upon what ultimate deal is negotiated. I mean, whether the UK goes to WTO rules or not. So I still think that we, we're we up in the air. I mean, it might well be an option, but um, I'm sorry to sound confused because the world is confused and so is everybody else.
0: Well, the the CETA model um, has a very interesting, you know, component to it where you could have the relationship between the UK and the EU start with a list of negative exceptions to free trade services. That's kind of a unique feature of CETA. And wouldn't that provide a good backstop?
1: Well, I think it could provide a good background, but I think the answer is that in in political terms, it doesn't seem like um, anything at this moment is negotiable um Boris Johnson does not have a majority in the House of Commons to pass anything through so i mean i think you know this this sounds like a good possibility but um you know and down the road that may well be where they're going to go but i, I don't think it's uh, i don't think it's first order um you know there are other issues ahead of it like what are you going to do about fishing uh, and agriculture goods and what are you going to do about skilled labor skilled labor absolutely what are you going to do about the fact that i mean in some sense what we've seen in the UK is that skilled labour has actually that the migrant flows have actually stopped and the availability of skilled labour appears to have diminished a lot. The Poles who used to work in Britain feel, um, in a sense, don't feel um, that they're welcome anymore. But the fall in the exchange rate has made Britain a less attractive place for Poles to work, so they no longer are coming in, which has reduced the supply of skilled labour and appears to have pushed up wage growth, um, wage rates, because of a shortage of skilled labour. And if you remove, I mean, if you think of the the logic as an economist, having skilled labor and migrants coming in who are skilled and speak English, that greases the wheels of the labor market and makes everybody better off. well, perhaps not everybody, some of the people who, who have their jobs mis- displaced. But ultimately, now what we've seen is exactly that. Those workers are starting to leave. That's slowing the economy, raising prices, raising wages, and making people worse off. So in some sense, delay, the more this stuff gets delayed, I think the, the more people realize how bad things are. Um, that wage growth slows, unemployment starts to rise, output falls, um, and the exchange rate falls. I mean, we've seen in the last few days, very interestingly, when the possibility and prospects of Brexit were pretty stronger than they are now, the pound had fallen down to about $0. twenty. but as that appears to be pushed back over the last few days, it's come back up about by about five cents. That's a big move, uh, and, and it certainly looks to me that um, politicians doing stupid stuff, which is what Johnson has been doing, um, will, have, will be impacted by the markets. The markets will speak up. And I think the, the type of deal that's negotiated and the potential of those deals is going to have big implications in the market. So, so the Cedar deal looks eminently sensible. But if you, and if you move towards it, presumably the markets will think that's a good idea. But oftentimes we're hearing stupid stuff and the markets will speak up. CETA already provides for duty-free trade for goods meeting
0: rules of origin. And of course, for Canadians, rules of origin very critical considering the inputs that we provide the UK and that get spread out into the EU as well. Right. Uh, CETA is the only EU agreement with this negative list approach. Be open first, then close doors. This sounds like this could be a model for the EU-UK trade relationship.
1: Potentially. Potentially. But, I mean, the issue is... Um... Uh, is that? I mean, in, in a sense, it's it's uh, it's too early days to say. I mean, we're really trying to talk about: is there going to be a no deal? Is there going to be a deal of the kind that Theresa May had negotiated? And Johnson has talked about the possibility of uh, you know, Mark II, like like NAFTA Mark II, um, which would be a, a deal which is going to have to be sorted out in the next very short time. And then we get to start to think about how much of a model calendar is. But I think that the, the, the model we talked about, I think that's that's down the road. It's just too chaotic at the moment to even to even know if there's going to be any kind of deal. And then and then and we're going to then go into a lot, even if there was no deal, we have to go into a long time period of negotiations and looking for looking for models that might work. So yeah, maybe so, but I don't think that's that's gonna you know that that takes us much far this year because there are pressing things like what are you going to do about the Irish border, which is the, you know, it's the number one issue.
0: It strikes me that regardless as to how this plays out, there is going to be a lot of long-term damage that needs to be repaired. If you've got an economy that is slowing, if not already in recession, but at the same time have an acceleration of inflation thanks to wage gains due to a shrinking labor pool, that just creates knock-on effects throughout the entire economy.
1: Uh, um, Absolutely. So let's just, I completely agree with that. So this is like a self-inflicted wound. We had a recession in 2008. It wasn't as if you you voted to say, please, let's have a recession. Well, essentially what the Brexit vote is is exactly that. And if you're sitting on the MPC, as I used to do, um, you're faced with a dilemma. Here's the dilemma. The prices are rising for the reasons that you've said, um, and because of shortage of supply of goods, that pushes their prices up, which means that the Bank of England should raise rates to lower that inflationary consequence. But at the same time, you have output falling which means that to encourage it, to encourage employment and to ca- encourage firms to carry on producing, you should cut rates. So on the one hand, the situation says you should cut rates. On the other hand, it says you should raise rates. And even if you could cut rates, you can't cut them by very far. And and, govern- and around the world, we heard uh, Mario Draghi yesterday, we heard Philip Lowe in Australia the other day saying, there's only so many things that the f- monetary authorities can do. We need fiscal authorities to step in. Well, Whilst Johnson probably couldn't pass anything through the parliament, let alone any fiscal help. So this is a big dilemma. You don't have much ammunition to be able to deal with the problem. And the politicians are running around like headless chickens, making the economy worse. And the economy has clearly slowed as a result of the Brexit and Brexit negotiations and the uncertainties that it's generated, which have come at the end of a long, long, slow recovery, which in the UK case I've written several times about, which is that the recovery in the UK is the slowest recovery in 300 years, second to the South Sea bubble, and before that, 600 years ago, the Black Death. So in a sense, Brexit comes because of the hurt people have felt because of those issues. But this is, as you rightly say, this does not look good. And this is actually not just the the problem for the UK economy. It's a problem globally for Canada and elsewhere. The IMF thinks that one of the major downside risks to the global economy is actually Brexit itself, for the reasons we've talked about.
0: Considering there are no fiscal levers that a politician is capable of pulling at this point in the Brexit scenario, are there any more economic levers, that Mark Carney at the Bank of England is capable of pulling at this point, considering to your point, interest
1: rates are almost as low as they could possibly be already. Right, well, it's a great question. Well, we have a model from yesterday from Mario Draghi, and in a way it's why it's so hard teaching macro to my to my students. So what we had yesterday was that I mean, Draghi actually cut interest rates from minus point four of a percent to minus point five so it's more negative it's quite it's quite hard to say free money yeah well we're paying you to i mean (laughs) there are places like in denmark we've seen i've seen people taking out loans with negative interest rates right so you take a mortgage and the bank pays you to take the mortgage i mean we're literally there um we also saw yesterday that they went back to doing more quantitative easing which means buying assets which is, um, so these are the weapons that they have. So the gov- what is the governor of the bank who's gonna be leaving in January? So this is another issue we can get to. How the heck are they gonna appoint a new governor and who would take the job? But anyway, 0.75 is where rates are now. You can cut it presumably to zero. No one in the UK has ever really contemplated negative rates, but if other people have got it, then you can do it. And Trump in the United States has been telling Jay Powell, who he appointed, that rates in the US are 2%. They should be negative to deal with this issue. And then you can go to more quantitative easing, but the issue clearly is how much bang for that buck are you going to get? What assets should you buy? And can and, and really, can these monetary policy makers do anything to much to compensate? And, and they've all been saying, folks, we can't do this on our own, but I want to go back and stress, unclear that Boris Johnson could do anything. So an example, one of the big things they did in, 2009 was to cut VAT, this value-added tax on goods, by five percentage points. So supposing they decided tomorrow that's what they should do, unclear to me that they could actually even do that, even if they wanted to, that they could actually get it through the Houses of Parliament. So that's obviously an issue for firms, an issue for the confidence of people about the UK economy. They don't, We don't appear in the UK to have a functioning government. It strikes me that the the savior
0: for for the UK may very well be um, the leader of the free world.
1: Well, I mean, maybe. I mean, the problem in a sense is that the leader of the free world. Should we assume that? I assume you mean Donald Trump. No, no, I'm talking about Angela Merkel. <laughs> yeah, I like, yeah, yes, exactly. Well, may, maybe, but I mean, yeah, well, let's. Yeah, maybe it is Angela Merkel. Um, yeah, you're right, but the problem is that we've seen a great deal of opposition in the last twenty four hours from the from Germans about the stimulus package that was put into um, yes into, into force yesterday, and the government of the government of the Bank of Austria objected as well. Um, the question is, is Germany going to go down that road and stimulate the economy? Not clear that it's going to. I mean, go back to whether it's Trump or whether it's Merkel. I mean, Trump certainly has created a global trade war, which is also pushing down uh, on economic growth and probably responsible for um, Germany going into recession, partly probably for the UK as well. So the issue is, are these these leaders in any position to do anything? And I'm sceptical. I mean, we certainly have not heard that Merkel's going to go in and put in lots of stimulus. What we heard out of Germany overnight was they objected to the stimulus that... That, that, that Draghi had put into place. The monetary stimulus, I see no sense in which they're going to suddenly come in and you know put a fiscal stimulus, which means that basically that, that, that they haven't learned from 2009. What happened was coordinated fiscal stimulus in 'oh nine took us right out of that recession. We got a big rapid recovery when Ben Bernanke and Gordon Brown got together, if you like, monetary stimulus around the world, fiscal stimulus around the world, recovery took place. And the question is, And your listeners should be mindful that perhaps we do not have the ability or the people who are smart enough to work out that that's what needed. And there's also a
0: law of diminishing returns, the the kind of quantitative easing that we saw during the last crisis.
1: We still really haven't fully unwound any of that either. Well, we haven't. uh, We haven't unwound that yet, Um, partly because the fiscal guys have done nothing and left all the hard work and the heavy lifting to the... Uh, to the central banks. I mean, the question now is, is the framework that exists possible and capable of dealing with these issues? I mean, America is is suffering because uh, it can't even do the things that the Bank of England and the ECB can do. By that, I mean, Congress only tells it it can buy government bonds, treasuries, or mortgage-backed securities. Um, That limits it. It could buy also, and uh, one other thing it could do is buy short-term municipal bonds, and it hasn't done that. But what we should look at around the world is that other central banks are buying other stuff. So the Bank of England has bought corporate bonds, including American corporates. And um, central banks are thinking about buying all sorts of things. And that's a lot of the conversation that's going on. But the bang for the buck now is that um, all these assets that have been bought, essentially what's left to buy, there's not that much left for central banks to buy. And so that's a a big problem Unless unless they're going to expand what they buy. Um, essentially for every 100 billion of of asset purchases you make, you're going to get diminishing returns and the impacts that they're going to have. So this is not good for the global economy. This suggests that um, growth is going to be slow again. And the Brexiteers, simply not be able to deliver anything.
0: To bring this full circle, the Institute's Daniel Schwannen writes that as businesses and governments plan for various scenarios, they should both make plans
1: for and support the possibility of a compromise. Well, the compromise is not, we have not seen much compromise going on. Um, What we're seeing is the parliament eventually is trying to force compromise, the European Union has basically said, we're prepared to compromise, but we're not prepared to go beyond. Um, We're not not prepared to allow you to do a Brexit, an a la carte Brexit, where you get to pick and choose which bits you'd like. So I think the confrontation that we've seen driven by Boris Johnson and the Brexit, the right-wing Brexiteers, essentially, what's the great phrase? The chickens are coming home to roost. And I think the economic realities are essentially what's coming which means, uh, for the reasons we've talked about, which means that parties are probably going to have to come together and compromise to some degree um, because of political and economic realities. But the puzzle, in a sense, is that the support for Brexit hasn't actually moved that much, and an awful lot of people want to get on with it, but the people who want to get on with it are likely to be the ones who are going to lose the most. So the places that voted for Brexit are, the places most likely to lose from brexit. So this so the compromise is kind of difficult, but in a sense, I think people have got to start to be aware what the realities are and what the truths are, and that and that's, take, that's slow to, thats slow to come. But ultimately, the compromise is probably going to come from the courts forcing the two sides together. What would you say
0: to a Canadian who has among the one hundred and nine billion in direct investment? in the UK. What would you say to them today?
1: Well, I would say you have to cover the downside, wait and watch, and do nothing right now. I certainly would not say to them, you should increase that amount. I think you should be thinking about uh, what's going to happen over the next six months. Is this a place that um, I can sensibly be in? Because does it have a credible Um, Does it have a credible economic government? And and down the road, are these things going to remain much the same? So my view would be, I'm afraid I would say, you have to hang fire and wait. But at this time, the UK does not look like a place that you should be investing in. David Blanchflower
0: is a professor of economics at Dartmouth University and a former member of the Monetary Policy Committee at the Bank of England. Coming up at the C.D. Howe Institute, A roundtable luncheon September 18th on using leverage to deliver Canadian pensions, titled Risk and Returns. On the 19th, understanding corporate risk and the value of cybersecurity. And on September 24th, from brain drain to brain gain, positioning Toronto as the new center for global tech talent. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the CD Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.